0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from Guymere Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, guymerebaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen.
1: Our Bible reading this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of god now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we all ask and imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in christ jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen
0: thanks rod Uh, As uh, we've already said, this is our Vision Sunday, an opportunity to talk a little bit about our theme for the year, and uh, you probably figured it out by now, it's focus. Uh, And this reflects essentially a a belief by us as, as a leadership that if we're to become all that God has called us to be... Uh, all that God has equipped us to be, then the next step for us is to be a little bit more focused with our attention and our energy, our gifts and our resources, to be uh, aligned in one purpose, to be of one mind, of one heart, to deepen our unity, to deepen our sense of community together as the people of God, as we strive to attain what God has called us to do. Uh, which is something that is different than perhaps you find in, in other churches, that, there's a, that we are here for a time and a place, uh, and what is it that God's called us to. And you'll be hearing a lot more about this over the course of the year. Uh, this is, uh, shall we say, aspirational at this point in time. Uh, We should actually probably put it in the present continuous, focusing, because that's essentially what we're going to try to do over the course of this year. But we want, as a church, to focus our attention. And you'll be hearing a lot more about it, not just on Sunday mornings, but also at things like the vision dinner, which I'm really looking forward to, an opportunity to talk a little bit about where this will kind of play itself out uh, in the life of our church, in particular and specific ways, uh, ways that uh, kind of, you know, wouldn't be appropriate to talk about necessarily on a Sunday morning, but are really quite significant for those of you who are committed to the church here, so we'd encourage you to be at that. But uh, today I want to focus not on kind of the overall sense of focus that we have, but actually on the vision that undergirds all that we do, and that is lives changed by Jesus. Uh, Now, that, that might seem a little bit new to you. If you've been around for a little bit, you think, I haven't heard them really talk about our vision quite that way, and that's because this has grown in clarity over the last few years for us. Initially, this has come, shall we say, out of our mission statement. You've heard us talk about that over the last 18 months. Everywhere we go and in everything we do, we will invite everyone to follow Jesus. Uh, That's what we can do. Uh, And yet, at the end of that, if we invite people to follow Jesus and they begin to follow Jesus, something's probably going to happen to them, isn't it? And that is that they will be changed by him. And so out of our uh, trying to figure out what we're called to do, we've kind of stumbled upon a, a, a way of saying what we hope to see. We hope to see lives changed by Jesus, but this isn't brand new, is it? Uh, it goes back further than a mission statement. Uh, number, for a number of years now, you've, you might have heard me talk about the metaphor of a happy meal uh, and uh, that evangelism and lives changed is our happy meal, which comes from an anecdote that I heard from John Lunny, our church treasurer, uh, who was telling me that in large corporations, apparently, uh, they have a couple of key kind of economic indicators. And if those indicators are doing okay, then everything else is doing fine as well, most likely. For McDonald's, it's happy meal. Sales. If happy meal sales are up, chances are everything's probably fine, and you know why, right? If you're selling lots of happy meals, you're selling them to kids, which means mom and dad are there and probably taking down a Big Mac or a filet of fish or some sort of gourmet burger as well. And so if happy meal sales are doing fine, everything else is fine. As a church, you'd have to say that if people's lives are being changed by Jesus and we are regularly hearing about that, probably everything else is fine. Right? You fo- you follow me on this? And we've been talking about this this metaphor for a while and as a church have been kind of uh, been confronted by you know how how often do we hear of lives changed? How frequently do we do we hear testimony given? How often are we encountering and engaging with people whose lives have currently presently now being changed by Jesus? This is a pretty big deal. But even that's not where this begins. Because nearly every church you go into that has any kind of vision statement or a mission statement or a purpose statement will say something largely like this, won't they? If you've been to lots of churches, they'll have something put up somewhere. They want to make disciples. They want to know Jesus. They want to help people know Jesus. Whatever it might be, it's all the same kind of thing because at the end of the day, the church, as, as, as a church, right, going all the way back to the very beginning, regardless of kind of what denomination you might find yourself in, the church has always been based on the belief that Jesus not only changes everything, but changes lives. He changes people. He opens eyes, he unblocks ears, he softens hearts, he brings forgiveness, he brings peace, he brings healing. This is the basis that the church has always been built on. And so our vision statement is kind of our language to express what the church has always been on about, lives changed by Jesus. So this is at once very, very old and very, very new. Welcome to it. And there's tremendous power, isn't there, in a changed life? There is tremendous power in a changed life. You know, we we notice it all the time. You're familiar with testimonials and endorsements. You know, some uh, famous athlete or some famous actor or some famous whoever gets on television and says, this product changed my life. Or this product is the choice that I make when I do whatever activity I'm doing. And you think to yourself, hmm, maybe I should try that as well. Right, uh, we, we use testimonials all the time now, don't we? Particularly with uh, the internet and social media. So how often have you seen this on a Facebook feed? Something like this. Hey, everybody, we're going to this place for a holiday or we're buying a new fill-in-the-blank. Any comments or ideas or thoughts? I see that fairly regularly. Now, what are we asking for? We're asking for people's testimonial, their endorsement. What have you done in Queensland that we should do? Uh, what dishwasher have you bought that we should buy? And we've actually just bought a new fridge, in part because my wife read all the reviews of it and then talked to some friends who had the same fridge. Now, if it works for fridges and like running shoes and whatever else it works for, how much more so when our life is changed by Jesus? How much more so? And, and this, the power of a changed life is of, of remarkable significance, If you you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to uh, Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 5. There are two stories in Mark's Gospel, one in chapter 5 and one in chapter 8, that are linked, at least on the surface, only through geography. In other words, they take place in the same location. So in chapter 5, Jesus and his disciples crossed the lake, the Sea of Galilee, to the region of the Gerasenes, we're told in verse 1. Now, the region of the Gerasenes was non-Jewish territory. It was Gentile territory, right? So for Jews, they divided the world into two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. If you weren't Jewish, everyone else kind of counted. They're in this Gentile territory. You can tell that it's Gentile territory because there's a bunch of pigs there, right? Jews don't eat pork. So it's unlikely that the herdsmen would have, been the, uh, would have been Jews or that the township who ran on that economy also would have been Jews. It's Gentile territory. And in the midst of all of this, they're, they're met by this man who is possessed, not just by one demon or two demons, but by a legion of demons. You might be familiar with the story. He's described in verses 2 and, 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 and th- through 5 this way. When he got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain, for he'd often been chained hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. This is a picture of a pathetic man, isn't it? Not pathetic because of something that he has done, but pathetic because of the circumstance that he finds himself in. He rushes down, we're not sure why, driven perhaps by the demons within him, and begs Jesus not to torture him. And Jesus then casts the demons out. He casts them out, and they request to go into the herd of pigs. They go into the herd of pigs. The pigs rush down the hill and drown themselves, which raises an ethical concern about Jesus destroying the economy of an entire region for the good of one man, which might give us the clue to what's going on there, right? And then the townspeople come out. Now, have a look at what happens. Verse 14. Those of the pigs ran off and reported this in the town, and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Jesus' ministry in the area of the Gerasenes lasts about half an hour, it seems, He gets off the boat, heals a bloke. The towns come out. The town people come out. They're amazed and afraid and say, would you please leave? The man comes to Jesus as Jesus was getting into the boat. Verse 18. And begged to go with him. And Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell him to Decapolis, the region of the ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. That's the one story. You might be familiar with it. Flip ahead to chapter 8. The end of chapter 7, we're told where Jesus goes, and he returns to the area of the Decapolis. Second time he's been there. His first ministry stint there was very, very brief. He shows up, and in in chapter 8, verse 1, during those days, another large crowd gathered. And they had nothing to eat. And so Jesus calls his disciples and says, they've been with me for three days. They have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread? Jesus asked them how many loaves they have. And Jesus miraculously feeds the 4,000, which is different from the 5,000. Now, here's the interesting thing that one commentator pointed out as I was doing some study in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has been to this region once. For about half an hour, maybe a morning, right? He healed one person who he then sent out to tell everyone what Jesus had done. The next time Jesus is in the area, 4,000 people hear about it and show up and stay for three days without food to hear from Jesus. And the commentator asks, is there a connection Did this man go everywhere and tell everyone everything that Jesus had done and did it bring such a remarkable response to people that they flocked to see Jesus? The power of a changed life, the invitational power of a changed life. But here's the question. If you were to place yourself in that story, if you're trying, going to kind of read the story again and think about it from the perspective of your position, who would you most associate with? Who would you most associate with? So if you were going to be, a, if you were going to be an actor in this, if you were going to read this through and think, okay, what's the perspective that I come to with this story, who would you be? Now, there's, there's Jesus, that's one option, right? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe we're not comfortable. Right? It's, oh, let me just say, it's okay to position yourself in that sense in an imaginative reading of Scripture. You're not saying you're Jesus. You're just trying to see it from his eyes. Compassion, those sorts of things. Right? The disciples, they're following Jesus. They don't really know what's going on yet. That comes later in the book, right? So they're following Jesus. And then you've got uh, the crowds. You've got two different types of people in the crowd. Uh, you've got people who are amazed at what they've heard. And you've got people who are freaked out by what they've heard. And then you've got the demon-possessed man. Right now, if I were to ask you your life right now, who do you most relate to? Because I suspect, if you're like me, that the people you relate to most are the amazed crowds. Like right now. Now, I don't really relate to the the demon-possessed man right now, in part because my life did not change that radically. I was never possessed by a legion of demons. I never lived amongst the tombs crying out. It was Canada, but it's not quite like that, right? (laughs) I don't relate quite to that, but also my life hasn't been that changed lately. Of anything, it's it's the amazed crowd. Wow! Isn't it amazing what Jesus did? Isn't that great? Isn't God good? The issue is that the power is not in me being amazed that God has done something in someone else's life. The power is when my life is changed. And the question that I have for us is, are we being changed? Are we being changed? Are you being changed? Am I being changed? If we're going to invite people to follow Jesus so that their lives can be changed by Him, are our lives being changed? You know, last week, Matt uh, Willis led us through a discussion around complacency. And uh, I did some thinking about it this week. I actually looked up a whole bunch of different blogs about, you know, seven signs that you're complacent or five signs that you're complacent. Imagine how many signs there are out there. Here are the ones that I picked up, though, that I think are most significant for us. Signs that you are complacent. And can I say complacent in your faith? One, you are never scared or nervous anymore. You never do anything that makes you anxious. You never do anything where you think, wow, if God doesn't show up, ha, <laughs> I'm in all sorts of strife. We only do safe things. That's one sign that you're complacent. Another is that you're not learning. When was the last time you really learned something new about God? When was the last time that, just, that God kind of took your theology and shook it all about and expanded the room and all your little theological furniture is lost in this big, big space? When was the last time you really learned and understood something about the character and purpose and call of God? We have a constant routine, and we are totally predictable if we are complacent. Now, I like routine. I think it's very valuable. I am predictable. But in the context of faith... If there is a predictability to my routine, I am unlikely to be surprised. And surprise is actually really important. Imagination is really important. And routine and regularity and predictability can actually grind imagination into the ground. We're satisfied with incremental growth. When very, very small things happen, we're like, yeah, that's enough. We're satisfied with that. And we're quick to make excuses for why the change has only been incremental. And one of our favorites is that we don't have enough time. Our complacency is hidden under a veneer of activity and busyness. And there were more. Do you want me to go on? It's kind of confronting stuff, isn't it? Because it's so easy to become complacent, it's so easy to allow the regularity of life just to continue. You, know, my eldest daughter, is um, starting university. She's doing some study in social work and policy. She's she's young and she's idealistic. She's going to change the world. As is appropriate to young people, isn't it? And yet, I think to myself, one day that idealism will change. It's just the nature of of, of maturity, isn't it? But my prayer has become that her idealism would not re, would not harden into cynicism, but would harden into resolve. Because an idealism that hardens into resolve is the source of passion in life. Idealism that hardens into cynicism is the path to apathy and to boredom, to a lack of compassion and death. Isn't it? And Matt talked last week about these articles he reads about young people and how young people bring zeal and passion, suggesting that it's okay for older people not to have any of that. He said, that just rubs them the wrong way. And I agree. Shouldn't we, who are beyond our youth years, be far more passionate about following Jesus than we were when we were 17? Shouldn't our idealism and passion of following Jesus then have hardened into resolve to follow? I I find this really quite challenging. I'm being, I'm growing, I'm growing, I know I'm growing, I'm learning, I'm developing, but am I being changed by Jesus? Can I actually point to it? Can I actually show you? Could you talk to my family for them to verify and go, yes, he has been changed by Jesus. Not just, he's read some more books and he knows more stuff. Are we being changed or are we content with being nice rather than being changed into being good? Good. Are we content with growing older rather than becoming more mature? Do we settle for knowledge over experience? Would we rather look back at how great it used to be or would we rather look ahead to how things might be? And here's the problem, that if we become bored or apathetic with our faith, you know what boredom and apathy stem from? They stem from sadness and loathing. If you think about the direct line between boredom, it doesn't come back to happy, does it? You don't slip from happiness into boredom. You actually slip from sadness into boredom, don't you? Or from boredom into sadness. That's not the kind of line that we want to be taking with our faith, is it? But the real problem is that the impact of complacency on our lives, on lives that are only marginally changed, that are satisfied with being nice people rather than good, is that it invites people not to meet Jesus, but into a life that's attainable in any other sorts of way. People can meditate and think about crystals. They can read self-help books and watch Oprah Winfrey on reruns. They can do all that stuff and have the same life that we do. But lives changed by Jesus are not like any other life, are they? You cannot use a different system and end up with the same outcome. You cannot receive healing or forgiveness or peace that lasts through meditation or counseling or any of those things. As helpful as that stuff might be in our overall life, our lives are changed by Jesus. And a life changed by Jesus cannot be changed by anything else. And when we invite everyone to follow Jesus, we don't want to then show them a life that just looks like theirs with more church. Because they can do that without church. We want to show them a life that's been changed by Jesus, don't we? And what's the, best, what's the best kind of change? It's actually when people say to us, what's happened to you? Why did you do that? Why have you changed? What's happened to you? Isn't that the best invitation? Instead of actually having to say to people, hey, can I tell you what Jesus has done in my life? They're asking, why are you so different? Why did you make that decision? Why do you hold those priorities? Why do you hold those values? And be able to say, well... Because Jesus is at work in my life. This, this is the start of, of, of our vision for us. If I can take you back to this passage in, in Ephesians chapter 3 that was read. It, uh, it ends with uh, those words, Now to him who was able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. You are familiar with those words? I've loved those words since the first time I heard them. There's just something about them, isn't it? And now to him who can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. Did you hear what Paul asked? Have a look, starting in verse 14. This, this is what he asks. He says, I kneel before our Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, and I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being. I ask that each of you might be strengthened with the power of God and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you might be rooted and established in love and may have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowing. Did you hear the paradox in that? that you might know that which is unknowable and finally that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God he doesn't say i pray that you'd be filled with you know a little bit of jesus you know like fruit juice concentrate that 5% jesus would be as kind of as good as it gets no extra sugar added right He doesn't say, I pray that you might be 10% Jesus or kind of a little more like Jesus. He prays that you might be, that you and I might be full to the full measure of God. And then he says, now to him who can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. And I used to think I could ask quite a bit and imagine a lot. This is the kind of change that Paul prays for. Are we, are we praying for this kind of change? This level of change? Are you being changed to that degree? Am I being changed to that degree? Are we being conformed to the likeness of Jesus or have we just gotten a little bit comfortable? My prayer this year has become that Jesus will change my life in a demonstrable way. That I'll actually be able to point out to you and demonstrate to you how Jesus has changed my life this year. I don't want to know more stuff, although I might pick up some knowledge along the way. I want my life to be changed. Will you join me in that commitment? Because that's what I'm asking you to this morning. Because as a church... We cannot be content with knowing more. And we cannot be content with what has happened in the past. We want to invite people to follow Jesus. And does our world need to meet him? Boy, do they need to meet him. And our mission, we don't do any of the changing. All we can do is invite people to meet him. And there is power in a changed life. So will you join me in being committed to asking Jesus to change your life in a demonstrable way this year? That he would continue to grow in importance, that he would continue to grow in significance, but that there would be change, that you would cry out to the Lord to change you, that you would ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the ways in which he wants to change and that you would commit yourselves to cooperating with him. And can I say, one of the most significant things you can do is to actually do something different. Do something that scares you in faith. Step out. When you start studying for the ministry, when you start preparing for for mission, when you start thinking through and being involved in ways that you have never been involved before and people start asking you questions, that'll challenge you. There are all sorts of ways in which we can cooperate with the Spirit. But I would want to urge and encourage you to do so this year. And that part of our focus would actually start here. That together, if we are committed here, then the first thing, the priority, the foundation of our commitment, what draws us together is not just our faith in Jesus or our belief in Jesus, but that we are committed to our lives being changed by Him now. And this alignment of purpose, this alignment of unity will provide us with a place to begin to invite those around us to follow Jesus too. So I'm going to invite the the music team up. And uh, we're going to sing that song, the the, the tag you may have been familiar with, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. the, The first part, the song's been around for a few years. You might have heard it before as well. Christ is Enough. And then, uh, during this song, I'm going to invite any of you who would like to commit with me to that prayer, to that decision, to come forward, pick up one of these candles. They've got stickers on them that says, My life changed by Jesus. Come forward, pick one of them up, and go back to your seat. And then I'm going to take some time to pray. Uh, Pray for us, and then we're going to continue to respond together. And can I just say that... If your life has been changed, if you're sitting there kind of going, oh, my life's been changed heaps in the last year, can you tell us about it? I don't hear those stories enough. We don't hear those stories enough. If Jesus is changing your life in radical ways and I'm the only one preaching this sermon and I'm the only one listening, then tell me the stories. We need to hear them. We need to be reminded that Jesus doesn't call us to be nice but to be different to change to be holy to be righteous to be like him so tell us the stories that we can hear and be encouraged so can I invite us to stand i want to pray for us and then as we sing anytime during the song just come down grab the candle take it back may this be your decision your commitment your moment but let me pray lord jesus uh, you have called us and saved us and want to conform us to your own likeness And I pray, Holy Spirit, that right now in this moment, that any commitments that we make would be inspired and driven by you. Lord Jesus, if there's any any part of this that's just been human persuasion, that's not going to bear fruit for eternity. That's not going to bring lasting change. Only you bring lasting change. So I pray that you would sweep through this room and that you would convict and encourage, that you would... Uh, draw commitment from each of us, that you would continue your promise to change us into the likeness of Jesus, that our lives, my life, will be changed in a demonstrable way this year. We ask this in your name.